Good morning. Okay. Man. Um, well, it's been an eventful week in our country and our, maybe our neighborhoods and within our friends or within relationships with strangers. Um, I think we can all acknowledge the division that's been created within our country. And also there's real hurt and fear uh, with many in our country. There's great excitement with some in our country. Uh, we need to realize that that is not just this far off thing. These are people that we live around, we work around, and we uh, want to build relationships with. And many of you here probably fit in one of those two categories. Whatever your feelings and thoughts are in this past week, uh, it will cause you to uh, react in a certain way to things. And so as we look at this passage this morning, um, this is a passage that, that really answers the question, uh, when what you thought was going to happen did not happen, or you're uneasy about what's happening, what are we called to do? And again, this almost this whole first chapter in the book of Acts is about um, leading up to Pentecost. This great event is coming, um, but it's this introduction. What do we do when... Things don't turn out the way we imagined. And this event in our country is similar in some way uh, to uh, the event of the ascension of Jesus, that um, it was a shock, it was a surprise, it caused feelings of some on with some side some excitement, some on the other side of great fear and anxiety. And so what do we do when we live in this? Uh, one thing I, I hope that we do as people who want to follow Jesus is as if we interact with people who, who are fearful and who are anxious, that our response is not, don't be fearful, don't be anxious. Because that is a horrible answer. <laughs> a much better way to respond is asking a good question. What makes you afraid? What makes you anxious? And so you can begin to build a relationship with them and to begin to walk with them in that. And not just say, uh, if you're anxious, you're over there. And if you're excited, you're over there. What does the Bible call us to do when our life or events in life don't turn out the way we imagine them? Let me read this passage from Acts chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. Delightful. And it became known to all the inhabitants, uh, delightful was my addition, it's not in the Bible, 
uh, became known to all the, inhabitants, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language. I, I have a horrible time pronouncing that word. Ad, well, you see it. <laughs> that is field of blood. That's the translation. For it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, you who know the hearts of, of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So we have in this passage is uh, what do the apostles do right after the ascension of Jesus? And then uh, the larger section of this, is, which we won't really get into, is the election of Matthias as the next uh, apostle. This is um, the only time in the Bible, that, in the, as the New Testament goes on, that one, of the, that one of the apostles after their death is replaced. So it's keeping the number 12, just like in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. There's just continuity here. Um, but what happens after the ascension of Jesus, uh, his followers sort of look around and are trying to figure out what to do. And he really, uh, he, has, he has given them simple things to do. And then what we have here in this passage is uh, the, 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 the disciples and the women and the people following Jesus, uh, they act on these things. Huh, like Jesus asked them to do something and then they go do it. <laughs> which you know as well as I do, in our life, this is a struggle. Jesus calls us. We're called to live a certain way because of what Jesus has done. And then to actually act on that and not be people who just talk about that and think about that and dwell on that, but to be people who actually act on that. And a simple, the first simple one here is they return to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them, the Holy Spirit is coming, return to Jerusalem, and even lays out their ministry to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utmost ends of the earth. This is the plan. This is how the good news and the message of Jesus is going to go out. And the first thing you need to do is return to Jerusalem. Uh, but what's, I think, so amazing is they were able to temper their excitement in light of this new command. And they were able to just go to Jerusalem. And they were able to realign, to reign in their fear, and do what Jesus called them to do. We can imagine that a few of the apostles heard the term only, they only heard to the utmost ends of the earth, and they are ready to do some global enterprise and think a neighborhood, a little city of Jerusalem, that is way too small. We need larger thinking. But what we have here, even with all that passion, is they're reined in and they go to Jerusalem. 
They just do this simple work of walking in obedience. This would have shown great passion and dedication if they would have left Jerusalem out of the picture and just went on to some global ministry enterprise. But they returned to Jerusalem because they knew this is what Jesus called them to do. And our calling, just like the calling of the apostles, just like the calling of all of God's children, is a calling to live in God's grace and walk in obedience. And that is probably as simple and boring on a daily basis that it sounds. But this is what we're called to do. Most of our obedience is unseen. And it probably is really boring. But the simple work of obedience to your creator is life-giving and will be more impactful than you can ever imagine. We're not called as people, as Christians, to be people of looking for events. Uh, We are called to be people who walk in obedience to Jesus. The calling to return was really to be a witness to God's power at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming in fullness, but also to be a witness to promote God's goodness and mercy and greatness to the people around them and to reflect his holiness to others. And part of their obedience was waiting. Return to Jerusalem. And they really were not sure what they were waiting for. They knew the Holy Spirit was going to come, but they did not know what they were waiting for. And so they spend about, well, they spend about 10 days uh, waiting. But I imagine their thinking was remembering how Jesus continually surprised them. Jesus confronted the religious while warmly welcoming the sinfully broken. And this not only was surprising to the followers of Jesus, it was offensive to them. They did not understand it. Jesus patiently welcomed children and and then also drove away prominent people by his piercing questions. Jesus dying when he could have caused a political revolt. Jesus being raised to new life when all the disciples ran. Jesus' visible ascension that was um, completely unexpected. The 11 apostles, the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers and sisters, the community that is close, waited. It really was that boring, I think. Like, 10 days of waiting. And they wake up and think, is this the day? Is this the day something real is going to happen? And that tends to be how we live. Is this the day something huge is going to happen? Because I'm sort of sick and tired of living this everyday obedience of walking with Jesus. Verse 7 says, it is not for you to know times or seasons. I imagine that came into their mind as they're waiting. I guess we're not supposed to know the time. We just wait. And as in our waiting, we walk in obedience. But what is clear is that Jesus told them to return to Jerusalem, and they did. They did what Jesus asked, even when it really didn't make any sense. Uh, if they're really going to reach the entire world, it's probably not a good idea to wait around. But Jesus knew 
They needed to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Even when they had much better ideas to impact the world, they waited in obedience to Jesus. And this waiting was not wasting time. I think that's some of our frustration in our Western culture that somehow waiting is wasting time. Instead of, in the amount of time you have waiting, you have the same 24 hours in your day than you do when you're experiencing a great event. You still have 24 hours in your day. And as children of God, we are called to do the same things, whether it is a boring day or an exciting day, we're called to walk in obedience to Jesus. The Bible really is full of seasons where waiting and praying is linked together. Walking in daily obedience in the waiting really is the majority of life. This is the majority of our days in life. Um, no matter how old you are and how much life you've lived, probably uh, you might, if you've lived longer, you might have more huge eventful days in your life, but I guarantee that the regular mundane boring days of waiting and walking in obedience and being impatient uh, fulfill most of your days. Because we're all looking for something greater and something more exciting than really what Jesus has called us to. But God does great work in our waiting. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness before the promised land. David, who was announced as king, and then he goes spends some seven years as a shepherd in a field. Paul, if you trace the time between Acts 9, when he was called, and then Acts 13, when he was appointed, it, 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 in between that, there are 17 years of waiting, walking in obedience. Obedience is not specifically to be saved for some exciting time, but this is the everyday, ordinary life of the child of God. It's walking in obedience. Knowing God's mercy, being a thankful person, knowing that God guides and moves and works. And so the apostles are called to walk in obedience during this time of waiting. In verse 13 and 14, it says, uh, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. And then verse 14, And all these with one, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So as Christians, as children of God, as people, we are called to walk in obedience to Jesus. And we're called to be unified because of who Jesus is and what he has done. They not only did what Jesus asked them, but they also did this in unity. They understood the you of Scripture. The majority of the you of Scripture is you all. There's a community aspect to it. We think it's hard to be unified in some things. Imagine being one of the 12 disciples and uh, following Jesus and learning from him and have everything in your life be reoriented to another kingdom as you're looking around at these other men thinking, they are nothing like me. Uh, someone this, this is in, a, a, a man wrote a book about the 12 disciples and each, he wrote about each one of them. And in the beginning of the book, he writes like a present day email. So if, if Jesus is gathering these 12 men to uh, be a part of this great movement, 
Uh, this is the email that is, is responding to that. It says, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has no qualities of leadership. The two sons of, excuse me, the two brothers of James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questionable attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, a particular, and particularly Simon the Zealot, have radical leanings. They both registered a high score in the manic depressive scale. Thaddeus is extremely sensitive, but he wants to make everyone happy. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability, resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. This was really a mess of people that Jesus gathered. The diversity and background of the disciples was evident. And I, and I could imagine it was felt in certain times when Jesus brought up things. Probably more when Jesus left. They began to fight and argue with each other. But the diversity was a benefit to a better understanding of what unified them. Jesus. The gospel. Not careers or education or preferred activities, but what unified them was that God met each of them with the grace of Jesus. And God did not make them all to be one specific person with one specific line of thinking. Their diversity was a wonderful thing. Diversity is a wonderful thing. It's shocking to me. You have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector. Completely different in their political views, and not only like a little bit, like completely different. I imagine there was numerous arguments, but God's grace was enough to unify them. It wasn't that Matthew stopped being a tax collector, and then he could think more like Simon the Zealot, and then there was unity. It was unity because of the work of Jesus. That is the only thing that will truly unify people. Because that unity begins with us letting go of the hierarchy that we hold as people. Whatever it is, education, career, background, lifestyle. Coming to Jesus, we let go of all of those things. But if you aim for unity, if, if our goal is to be just a unified group of people, and that is our goal, um, then we're going to have chaos. 
But if our goal is to pursue Christ and to walk with him and to be humble um, with him and and to be humble around other people, unity will happen. And it will be a beautiful thing. And it will be hard. But it is a beautiful thing. Because the gospel humbles us. The gospel gives people a new identity as children of God. The gospel allows us to be honest about our own desires and we can confess our sin and weakness. The gospel is the gift that creates unity in diversity. But to take hold of this unity, we need to understand that we're called to walk in God's grace and obedience. We're called to enjoy the diversity that is around us. And we're called to be people who are devoted to prayer. This is what these men did in this 10 days waiting for Pentecost. These men and women, this gathering of people. But as Christians, we talk about prayer as if it just happens. Like it's an easy part of our day. Here it says, the the apostles devoted themselves to prayer. If we were to use that word, If you were to use that word in your life, what do you devote your life to? Uh, I devote my life to eating. I devote my life to sleeping. Uh, Prayer would not be one of those things that would quickly come to my mind unless I'm in church. And then I know, like, I'm supposed to say spiritual things, and then it would come to my mind. What is devotion? Faithful persistence despite hardships. One horrible attribute of our Western culture is the repulsion that we have to anything that might cause a hardship, anything that might be hard. We want to figure out what is an easier way to do it. We like to work when we know we'll get paid. We like, to, um, we like effort when we know there'll be results. Uh, we like prayer when we know something is exactly what we want is going to happen, and then we see it as worthwhile. This is actually one reason we should devote our time to prayer. And not just for yourself, but our community, your neighborhood, the people in your neighborhood that you don't know yet, the people that you interact with all over, praying for our city, our country, and our world. I think one thing that uh, prayer does is it begins to strip us of this idol of efficiency. And we will begin to be changed. Prayer is rarely convenient. And it's often grueling. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was in, uh, several pastors needed to get together to talk about something in the community. And so there's an email thread, and I don't know how many, maybe six to ten pastors were on it. And one pastor said, let's have it at my church on Saturday, and it said something like, we have prayer meeting, so let's meet at 7 in the morning on Saturday. And then you see in the email, all these guys know each other, so there's some humor. It's the email like, well, can we meet, uh, can we meet after your prayer meeting, like 8 or 9? And the pastor writes back, uh, that is after our prayer meeting. <laughs> 7, so I'm reading it thinking, oh my gosh. <laughs> really humbling to me. Prayer is not wasting time. Prayer is not just what you do when you're overwhelmed. Prayer is communing with your heavenly Father. Prayer is to be the regular habit of our lives as children of God. 
And you as a child of God has been, have been called into the hospitable home of God to taste of his mercy, to drink of his grace, to be cleansed eternally and linked with him. Having received this blessing, you have been called to live a life that is drawn from these waters, to walk in obedience, to live in unity, and to pray as a member of the family, to forsake these and then believe that you're living a life of flourishing is really a misunderstanding of what flourishing is. Walking according to his ways, working for unity, devoting your life to communing with God is a well-lived life. And so just as uh, the followers of Jesus were in great confusion after his ascension, what do we do? Uh, we face at a much smaller level, but for some of you, it's much more heated and hurtful. Uh, we face something similar in our country. And so what are you and I called to do? Walk in obedience to Jesus, pursue unity, and devote our lives to prayer. It's that simple. But it doesn't mean it's easy. And this is what we're called to do. Even in the boring days of waiting, where you're waiting for something spectacular to happen, this is what is to make up your day. Won't you bow with me and we'll pray as we come to receive of the table of the Lord's Supper this morning. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you know our weakness, that you know we become passionate about things, um, and you call us to be passionate about you. You call us to rest in you, knowing that you are uh, the king of creation. Nothing, nothing happens outside of your hand. And we pray that we would be people who would be humble before you, who would learn to rest in you, who would, be, uh, who would take joy in walking in obedience, who would pursue unity with people that are not like us, and who would be people who are devoted to prayer. We thank you for all that you provide. We thank you that you strengthen our faith. And we pray that this morning as we receive of this meal, that we would come with open hands and repentant hearts and that we would be nourished. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.